came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come to America. Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have one great show for you today. A report from Europe. Mario Economo, Dr. Peter Michalos, how can we all live longer? We have CIA Rick Prado, and he wrote a book about his 24 years that are very, very interesting. David Narukman from Israel, and he's going to talk about Christians and the Orthodox Jews getting together or not getting together. We have Attorney General Jason Mayores from Virginia, and let's start off with Senator Blackburn from the great state of Tennessee. With us today is Senator Marsha Blackburn of the great state of Tennessee, and and uh, she's with us to tell us what the heck is going on in Washington. And so many things are going on. Uh, she's a member of the Armed Forces uh, Committee. Uh, she's on the Veterans Affairs Committee, Judiciary Committee, and so on and so on and so on. Well, well Senator Blackburn, tell me, what bothers you the most at 3 o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep? What worries me tremendously is what we see happening with the aggression coming out of the new axis of evil. Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. The pressure that they are putting on one another to stand up and fight against the United States. And uh, we see... Uh, how they feel emboldened because Joe Biden is weak. Uh, Joe Biden is not holding them to account. Joe Biden has not asked China to explain COVID and what happened at the lab. He has allowed them to continue to export to the United States without saying one word to them about the trade imbalance. Uh, he is uh, continuing to allow them to be aggressive with Taiwan and the Pacific Island nation. And we see Iran now emboldened because Joe Biden has released $6 billion to them. And we know, you know, John, they are not going to use that money to feed the poor. They are not going to use it to better the lives of their people. They're going to use it to push forward on uranium enrichment and nuclear proliferation. We also well, know that as a matter Iran, of fact, Senator, she used they Iran used September 11th to to point out to the American people that they're going to use the money any way they want to use it. And to me, right. to to do it on September 11th was sending a signal out: beware. Well, and. Of course, with President Biden announcing this on September 11th and then with Iran saying we'll do whatever we want to do and knowing that Iran has teamed up with Russia to create drones that are now flying over uh, Ukraine and China, we hear, is pretty much banking that operation. This should be something that worries us. Having 
uh, Kim Jong-un over in Russia visiting with Putin, extending the hand of friendship, saying, we want to be your ally. Come visit with us in North Korea. Come see what we're doing on developing next generation rockets. Uh, This is not something that is going to serve the American people and our cause of pushing freedom around the globe. It's not going to serve us well. So uh, that is something that worries me. Yes. Uh, Does it keep me up at night? Does it worry me for my kids and grandkids? You better believe it. It certainly does. Uh, Understood. Uh, The other thing that's going on, uh, Senator, oil all of a sudden has moved up to uh, $95, $96, $97 a barrel, and you're going to have the inflation spiral go, go wild again. Of course, and you look at the price of gas, a gallon of gas. I think it was uh, right about $2.30 a gallon when Biden took office. And today uh, it is um, up around three eighty-five in Tennessee. It's pushing $4, and your premium um, blends are even higher than that. And, of course, when you talk to people in Tennessee, what they talk about is the impact of inflation and what it is costing them to fill up the tank, to fill up the grocery cart, what going back to school and school supplies cost them this year, what clothing is costing them. I was at a a town uh, meeting in one of my counties, and a lady was talking about this very thing. She said, what are these people in D.C.? What are they thinking? Where do they get these numbers when they say, oh, inflation is only up 3%? That is double what inflation was when Donald Trump left the White House. Think about that. That is double. Now, it is down from the high that it hit. But when you look at the basket of goods that you get, the price of groceries are up nearly 20%. Fuel costs are up over 30%. Home heating costs are well up about 40%. Uh, you, you have to look at what, where you're spending your money and how these prices are up. Understood. And uh, uh, if, if, if Brent oil has gone almost close to 100, you're going to see inflation. You're going to see food go back up again. You're going to see uh, gasoline go even higher and it's going to be a mess. Uh, let's talk about uh, the, the, the world economy as far as uh, the Far East, China. Uh, they're challenging us economically. Is their armed forces just playing with us? Uh, uh, I don't think China really wants a war. What do you think long term over the next five, ten years? China wants global domination, and what they would like to do is become globally dominant and have the 21st century be the China century. That is, that's been their goal. They have worked very forcefully since the mid-20th century to make that their goal, to be globally dominant by the time we get to 2050. So they think they can do this without firing a shot. They want to do it with economic warfare. They want to do it with geopolitical pressure. Uh, They are looking for allies. That is what you see in this new axis of evil with their coziness with Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. 
they feel like that they can use soft propaganda, which is what they have done through our sister city programs, the Confucius Institutes in our colleges, the Confucius classrooms in our K through 12 schools. This is all this is all their goal. This is what they're working toward. And we would be smart to recognize that China is not a competitor. They are not a friend or a frenemy. They are our adversary. Uh, tell us, the elections are, are going to be coming up in November of, of 2024. And uh, uh, do you believe that uh, the American people are realizing that uh, things are not going in the right direction finally? I think the American people have become very unsettled with what they see happening in this administration. When you look at rising inflation, when you look at crime rates in the city, when you realize, as one of the sheriffs in Tennessee told me, said, look, you've got all of these issues that find their genesis in that open border, whether it is drugs that are making it into our cities and our communities, killing over 100,000 Americans last year. That is the fentanyl, the meth. When you look at what is happening with human trafficking, the cartels have turned human trafficking from a $500 million a year business in 2019. They've now made it a $150 billion a year business. And they are global organizations bringing people from 176 different countries to our southern border. When you look at the crime that is in our communities right now, every two minutes a child is bought or sold for sex in this country. That is because of the sex trafficking and human trafficking that the cartels are doing. They're operating on American soil. They have set up shop here because they know Joe Biden is not going to do anything to them. Senator, we have a minute left. What would you like to tell all the American people? I hope that they will keep up with me at blackburn.senate.gov, or they'll find me on social media at Marsha Blackburn. Well, thank you so much, Senator Blackburn. And uh, I love the state of Tennessee. I lived there for two years, years ago. And uh, God bless you, and uh, God bless America. Thank you. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. <music> Giving us a report of what's going on in Europe, we have Mario Economo, a former banker in New York, London, and Zurich with the major financial centers. Uh, Mario, give us an update. What's going on? Yes, good morning, Cats Roundtable. So let's touch on... Uh, uh, new information regarding Europe's PMI data, the Purchasing Managers Index, uh, which is an indicator basically that provides insight into business conditions, and this is suggesting that the EU is actually facing a contraction. We know that Germany, in Germany, house prices have actually fallen their steepest since the year 2000, so that's a, a pretty big, uh, pretty big development in and of itself. We also know that uh, in the last week, the Polish Prime Minister has made some pretty bold statements regarding Ukraine and specifically that they're no longer intending to transfer any more weapons to the Ukraine. Uh, they've essentially transferred all of their Soviet-era 
military equipment to the Ukraine. They've also transferred 60 of their Leopard 1 tanks and 24 of their Leopard 2 tanks. Everything, of course, has been destroyed. Uh, and now they are uh, not interested in transferring any more equipment. In fact, they are looking to build and modernize their own equipment in their own country. The president of Poland actually said something which was also very interesting. He described Kiev as behaving, and I quote, like a drowning person clinging to anything available. So we're beginning to see cracks in Europe with respect to the Ukraine and uh, the uh, Russian uh, war against the Ukraine. Um, I do want to touch on something else also, and this is very important. A lot of people thought there was big news this week, uh, this past week uh, in, uh, in New York City with respect to the U.N. meetings uh, that were happening. The reality is the real news, however, was the fact that the Chinese foreign minister did not go to the U.N., but instead went to Russia, where he met with President Putin, and he's actually preparing President Putin's official state visit to China in October. Uh, this is very interesting because this comes uh, on the back of the admittance of new BRICS members uh, to the uh, BRICS Association, and specifically Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, United Arab Emirates, Argentina, Ethiopia, Egypt, and Iran. So we see now that the, uh, what we had discussed a while back, uh, pre the war in the Ukraine uh, and subsequent to the war, that this was going to become a multipolar world, it's in fact taking shape now. Many of these countries are starting to line up, not necessarily against the U.S., but they're beginning to explore other options, which involve banding together and creating a system separate of that uh, of U.S. Uh, hegemony, both in the financial system and in the global order. Um, China released a, a computer chip for its phones. It actually independently created a state-of-the-art latest generation telephone, one which can actually work through satellites and can actually use uh, 5G technology. This is interesting because this essentially shows us that China now has the ability to manufacture phones on its own with its own computer chips without having to rely on the U.S. and more importantly on Taiwan. Uh, I think this is their first step uh, towards a digital currency because if you can create a phone which operates independently and is built independently of the West, you can actually then create a digital payment system around that phone, one wherein you're not, no longer relying on the U.S. dollar or the U.S. and Western Europe uh, to be able to approve your transactions. So I think it's important for us to keep our Mario, eye on that who as well. Would, who, who would trust a digital coin from China? Uh, well, I'll tell you this. Um, <laughs> the, the flip side to that answer is, does the world now trust the U.S.? And I say this because the sanctions that the U.S. imposed on Russia uh, and Europe rushed to defend and support were, in my opinion, not that intelligent. Because what they've done is they've created a system whereby every country out there no longer is interested in being, uh, being a, a hostage to the U.S. and the U.S. financial system. So, you know, will countries trust uh, China? I don't know, but it seems like they are because we would not have seen this many uh, new applicants to the BRICS uh, apply and actually join. And by the way, these applicants that did join the BRICS, uh, one of them, specifically Egypt, is a, a very large U.S. ally, yet they went ahead and joined, as is the United Arab Emirates and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So I think it's, it's foolhardy of us to sit there and to discuss whether anybody will trust China. The reality is people are trusting China. They're actually starting to trade their oil uh, for Chinese yuan, 
And I think that it's important for Europe and for America to realize that our goal and our role in the world is not to focus on whether or not they have authoritarian regimes there, but to figure out how we can trade with them in order to maintain and improve our standard of living in the West uh, without worrying too much about what is happening domestically and internally in their countries. Well, Mario Kromu, thank you for the update, and uh, God bless you, and stay safe uh, in Europe, and uh, we'll talk again real soon. Thank you, Mr. Katsimatidis. Enjoy your day. With us today is uh, Rick Prado, uh, a CIA man, a man that dedicated his life to our country for many years, almost 24 years, I think, Uh, and he uh, has written a book. Uh, and uh, uh, Rick, uh, welcome to uh, uh, WABC, and welcome to uh, our show this Sunday morning. Thank you for having me, Joe. And uh, now you you were in for how many years, and uh, you were stationed all over the uh, uh, all over the world. Yeah, I did about twenty four years with the agency. Started as a paramilitary officer, uh, supporting the war in Nicaragua. Um, I did some pretty good uh, kinetic stuff there. That's in the book including blowing up a, uh, a port uh, that the Sandinistas owned that really uh, crippled them for a while. Um, I did uh, six overseas tours. I've been a chief of station, deputy chief of station, deputy division chief. Um, and I started uh, the Bin Laden Task Force in 1997. And this is when we decided to go um, really hard at him to figure out what he was up to. Um, that and I was uh, chief of operations uh, at the uh, CIA's counterterrorist center when 9/11 happened. Uh, tell us, uh, you must had a, a lot of adventures uh, defending our country and making sure uh, the world goes in the right direction. Uh, can you give us one story that uh, uh, that that will, the American people on a Sunday morning they can swallow their coffee? I, I think the most relevant uh, geopolitically is the fact that we started the Bin Laden Task Force in 1996, early 96. And the reason it's important is because by 1997, we had incredible amount of information of what he was up to, that he was bad, that he was targeting us. And he was in Khartoum, Sudan, um, totally comfortable. He was there as their guest. So we had uh, we proposed several uh, legitimate operational plans to neutralize him, whether it was to kidnap him or kill him. And uh, unfortunately, politically, that was never accepted. And I think the reason that that is important is because imagine if we would have been able to neutralize Bin Laden in 97 or 98. The the attack on the ship Cole wouldn't have happened. The attack on our two embassies in Africa wouldn't have happened. And arguably, even 9-11 might have not happened. And, and what prevented it uh, from being being able to neutralize them earlier? It, it was just politics. Uh, you know, my, my building was willing, and even my my, uh, my political seventh floor was willing, um, but uh, the the administration at the time just did not want did not want to take the risk uh, to you know picking up this guy. And you know what I attribute it to is is uh, you know loss versus gain politically, and that's part of the problems that we suffer. But at the end of the day, imagine if we could have shot uh, uh, Hitler in 1938. Well, this is no different if we would have been able to neutralize him uh, in 97. The world would have changed. And, um, well, I guess uh, uh, our old friend from the FBI had his own hit squad, and he did what he had to do uh, at one time. Uh, 
Mr. Hoover. And um, at what point did that change in the CIA? 9-11. Uh, 9-11 was obviously the tipping point. Until then, we were really uh, playing Sisyphus, pushing a rock up the hill. Um, politically, the, the traction just wasn't there. The interest wasn't there. Uh, even though they had blown up our embassies and all these other attacks overseas. Um, so 9-11, obviously, is when uh, we got the, the presidential finding signed by George Bush. And, you know, as you know, CIA was first boots on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, helping the uh, our special forces come in a few weeks later. So, Understood. And, and at what point in our history was the CIA hurt by a, a president of the United States where it, it didn't make you guys as efficient? I mean, what was the word around among you guys, among them, yourselves? Well, I think that the, the two or three biggest uh, political setbacks for us as administration was it's, it had to start with, uh, with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was a wonderful guy, very smart, but very weak and very indecisive. And, and that cost us uh, a lot of ground. You figure under his tenure, the Russians immediately in, uh, uh, invaded Afghanistan. The Iranians took our hostages. In contrast, when Ronald Reagan took over in 81, the day after he was sworn in, our hostages were released, and subsequently the fall of the Soviet Union under that. So uh, I think with, with uh, the combination of, of him uh, and, and uh, you know, the Clinton administration was also very weak and very political. And that led to 9-11 and led to a lot of other things. It okay. led to a lot of things that could have been avoided, yes, sir. Very sad, very sad. Um and uh, any, we got a, a, a minute left. Anything you want, you want to tell the American people? Let's talk about your book again. It's called Black Ops. Uh, and uh, Rick Prado, P-R-A-D-O, is the author. And it's available, I'm sure, in Barnes & Noble, I'm sure, in Amazon. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it is a, a New York Times bestseller. It hit number eight uh, shortly after coming out. Um and the book is primarily a realistic view of what CIA is really all about and what my colleagues are all about, not how we are portrayed in the media, especially Hollywood. Understood. Last question. Sir. Uh, from the Wagner Group, is Pergrazin alive or dead? Your opinion. You know, I don't have access. I don't have access to that kind of information. But when people disappear in the Soviet Union, uh, that means usually they disappear permanently. Thank so you so much. I'm going to be buying your book uh, and the book uh, again, Black Ops by Rick Prado, P-R-A-D-O. I'm going to be buying your book, and when I see you in New York sometime, you'll autograph it for me. It will be my honor. Let me know what you think of it. Thank you so much. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. If you ever miss a segment or want to hear it again, go to wabcradio.com, go to podcasts, go to minicasts, and play back your favorite segment. Problems in Israel? Well, there are many, many, many problems in Israel, and among them is uh, problems between the Christians and certain uh, aspects of the Jewish community. With us today is David McCrackman, and uh, he is a uh, famous uh, uh, person that over the last uh, two decades, he deals with problems uh, between Christians, Jews, and other Israeli problems. 
David, uh, uh, thank you for calling in this Sunday morning in New York. Uh, tell us about what what's going on in Israel and uh, give us a bigger, better description than I gave about your what you do. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. As you know, in a few hours uh, later on today, we have the holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And this is a good time to actually talk about uh, the state of Christianity in, in Israel as we reflect uh, nationally on how we can do better as a country towards a community that only comprises of 2% of the country's residents and citizens. Uh, besides being a Bayer projects and organizations dedicated to creating Hebraic resources for Christians. And as you just mentioned, I've been involved in Jewish-Christian relations for over two decades. I started off in the Israeli Council of New York, and I was involved in opening up the first Orthodox Jewish institution with Rabbi Shlomo Riskin uh, from 2007 to 2021. And now I am uh, leading this organization called the Isaiah Project. So I've also received a master's in biblical literature from Oral Roberts University, making me the only Orthodox Jew ever to graduate from a spiritual university's theology program. Uh, in regard to what you asked and the issue between Christians and Jews that's making headlines, anything that happens locally in Israel becomes an international story. Uh, so recently, there, you've probably been hearing about the issue of clergy members being spat upon from certain sectors of the Jewish community in Israel. So I just wanted to sort of break this down for your audience. We have over 9.6 million people that live in the state of Israel, which is the size of New Jersey. We had over the last 20 years 100 attacks on Christian holy sites and uh, certain clergy members being spat, spat upon by members of the ultra-religious community. Uh, throughout the years, the police department has been involved, government officials have been involved, but there needs to be more needs to be done as far as how do we curb harassment against Christians from the ultra-religious community, and I would say also from, from other sectors of the Orthodox community when it comes to vandalizing Christian holy sites. Now, I just want to make sure that you're sanction uh, acts against Christians. These are individuals part of certain organizations within Israel that once in a while do these attacks and should, and should, if it's possible, people who are caught should be arrested. And if you're attacking a holy site, according to the law of 1967 of our prime minister, Levi Eshkol, he guaranteed the protection of holy sites to the churches and saying that anyone who vandalizes, can serve up to seven years of prison. So that's on the books. Now, what, now the question is um, enforcement of the law. That's a different thing. And I would say we need to do a better job in doing that. There is, for, for example, a few months earlier this year, there was an, uh, a vandalism on a Christian uh, graveyard, and uh, the people were caught on camera but they were never prosecuted or imprisoned. Someone was picked up, arrested, but then was released. Uh, so David, what, what, I'm, uh, what we're trying to ascertain 
if this is a serious yeah. uh, situation or is it, uh, I mean, things always happen in the United States. Things always happen. And it, it's a couple of individuals that are, you know, possibly nut jobs or whatever they are, uh, that, uh, but uh, that it's not a uh, uh, situation that's yeah, there's ongoing. No systematic, if you're looking from a, from a systematic point of view, there's no systematic things happening in Israel to attack Christians. So again, remember, over the 20 years, we have over 100 attacks, right? And these are by people of individuals who have committed these acts. Now, yes. in recent years, in recent years, we, because of our, our CCTV cameras, we have the ability to see people who do these acts. And that's where the conundrum happens is why law enforcement doesn't do a better job ensuring the protection of holy sites, besides just using a PR moment of getting together with the leaders and talking about the same thing over and over again. So there I would say that the government needs to do a little bit more in the protection of holy sites. And I would say even further that even if you have students below the age of 18 who go ahead and do these acts of vandalism or are spitting on clergy, and we have proof, then what we need is the community itself, led by the rabbis, to issue a suspension from their school to ensure that, that this is not tolerated. Because if this happened in Borough Park or it happened in Flatbush, uh, obviously, you know, you have elected officials coming out and denouncing this, and there would be Jewish organizations uh, crying anti-Semitism. So here, we are the stewards of the Holy Land, as Jews, and we have to make sure those people who are not Jewish are protected. And the, the biggest minority that we have are Christians living in the Holy Land. We have 200,000 Christians in the Holy Land, and none of, the, none of the members of the Christian community should ever feel unsafe or even feel, you know, when they're passing uh, someone who's religious, being feared that they should be spat upon. And the only way that happens, because this is where law enforcement can't really do it until they have something on camera. But there should be uh, something happening in the religious community to ensure that the students, whoever does this, get suspended, their parents are called down, and that's where the religious community can play a vital interest into helping curb some of the stuff that you're seeing online. I understand. Uh, David Necrotman, thank you so much for explaining it to the American people this Sunday morning. Uh, God bless you, and uh, God bless uh, Israel and America, and uh, we hope to catch up with you again real soon. Thank you. You too. God bless. With us today is Attorney General Jason Meores, and uh, he is the great uh, uh, Attorney General from the great state of Virginia, and a lot of good things have been happening down there, and I figured Sunday morning, let's get an update. Uh, General Mayores, uh, give us an update. What's going on? I, I hear good things are going on. Well, you know, the, the governor is doing what I call the Virginia Renaissance. You know, we took over for this far-left liberal monopoly under Ralph Northam, and uh, the governor has really been bringing, I mean, his first uh, year and a half in office, he's found over a billion dollars of waste. He's cut taxes by several billion dollars. He's back the blue. He stood with law enforcement, and He's really empowered parents, which is one of the central tenets of his campaign was parents matter. And so uh, Virginia is kind of a quirky state in the sense that we have our elections in in odd number of years. And so we have the entire Virginia Senate and the Virginia House are up. 
And uh, it's going to be a dogfight because we have a closely divided House, slight Republican majority. We were on the ballot in 2021, and so we actually recaptured the Virginia House uh, under Governor Youngkin's coattails. Uh, but we have a closely divided state Senate, and right now we have a far left uh, uh, control of the state Senate that's blocking a lot of common sense measures that uh, as much work and as much good as Governor Youngkin's done, a lot of it's being blocked by this group. And so we're really talking to the voters, and it's becoming a little bit of the focus point of the nation. We've had a lot of national coverage about our election, both in the New York Times and in the Washington Post, and they realize that it's really going to be a bellwether for we think how the nation's going to go in 2023. Uh, give us the big issues. Uh, and you have the, the entire what, the Senate and what, what do they call the other house? Yeah, it's the, the Virginia House, State House, and then the uh, Virginia State Senate. And I'll tell you, the, you know, the issues we're facing right now is I'll give you an example. The, the Democrats, when they were in control, tied Virginia's admission standards to California to an unelected air quality board that then ruled the ban all non-electric vehicles. So Virginians very shortly will not be able to buy anything other than electric vehicle. If you like your Ford F-150 truck, if you like your SUV, if you like your Honda Accord, you're not going to be able to buy it. And so uh, I know this may sound incredulous to your listeners, but that's the regime they set up in Virginia. We actually had a bill this past year to get that repealed, and they voted it down on a party-line vote. I mean, that's one issue. The second is, you know, the, the, the governor said, hey, we're not going to be – we're going to go hard on these fentanyl dealers that are poisoning our kids. You know, we had over 108,000 uh, overdose deaths last year alone in America. It's chemical warfare, what these cartels are doing. And prosecutors, real prosecutors, not these social justice warriors, but real prosecutors have been asking to go after these dealers that are poisoning our kids and charge them with felony homicide. Well, it died in a party-line vote. You had Democrats in the Virginia Senate in Richmond that'd rather side uh, with fentanyl dealers uh, than with law enforcement with Governor Yunkin. And so, uh, and then finally, we had another example of the governor wanting to protect kids from big tech. He had a bill saying big tech companies can't sell a minor child's social media data uh, to the highest bidder, and they voted that down on a party-line vote. So we're doing a lot of great things in Virginia, a lot of great common-sense leadership, but there's a lot more we can do. And those are the types of issues that are in the ballot this fall. And I think, candidly, so many of these issues are going to be relevant for next year with, with making sure government works for us and not against us, and standing with police and saying we're going to stand for safe communities and we're going to say parents matter. We're not going to pass regulations that are going to ban non-electric vehicles. Uh, those are a lot of the same issues that are going well, to animate the election in 2024 and animating Virginia right now. I understand Great Britain uh, who passed a, a law like that about uh, electric vehicles by 2030, uh, the prime minister stood up a couple days ago and said, no way, it's not going to happen. Maybe, and pushed it out to 2035, and I'm sure if they get more common sense individuals, uh, it'll be pushed out, pushed out, because uh, nobody believes it could happen in, in that period of time. Well, you don't have the lithium mining capacity. You literally have to multiply it by a factor of 10 at minimum to meet the demands of lithium to build these electric vehicles. But think about it. In 2001, we were energy dependent. We were importing oil from a lot of countries in the Middle East that didn't like us very much. Then we had the shale revolution. We're now energy independent. We actually export oil. We're going to trade being dependent upon Middle Eastern oil being dependent upon electric vehicles and batteries made in China. Uh, it, is, it is pretty astonishing to see 
the path that they are on. But, you know, Winston Churchill said Americans always do the right thing after they've exhausted all their options. And we think Americans are going to see this and realize quickly what the prime minister of England realized as well, that this is not attainable. Uh, and you certainly can't say we're going to consumer choice is one thing. And if you want an electric vehicle, go buy one. But to deny that right to be able to buy a traditional car by with Americans, I think, is un-American. And it denies consumer choice. And we're going to stand up for it. Understood. Um, what else would you like to tell all Americans on a Sunday morning? Uh, we got another minute or so to go. Well, if you're in Virginia, uh, you know, one thing I think all Republicans need to think of is we need to get away from this mindset that early voting is bad. We launched secureyourvotevirginia.com for our voters to encourage people to vote early because can't too, too long. Republicans and conservatives have been sitting on the sideline and and our attitude in Virginia is, hey, let's figure out the rules of the game and go win. And so our job is to go win. And so we have 45-day early voting in Virginia. Uh, we've used that to really maximize votes in a lot of deep red areas. And so I'm just encouraging everyone across the nation, as Republicans, we've got to get in this mindset of we're going to go vote early because it's the only way for us to be able to compete with what we've been dealing with with the Democrats. And we're really pushing that hard in Virginia, and we encourage other states to do so as well. In Georgia, Governor Kemp won the early vote in Georgia when he went on to crush Stacey Abrams. So it can be done, it has been done, and we're going to do it in Virginia this year. Last question, a quickie. Do you, does Virginia have a migrant problem? Well, we definitely, we definitely have illegal immigration that come up up 81 and 95. We definitely have some definite pockets, nothing like what you see in the border uh, which right now is just absolute chaos at the border. It's criminal what is happening there. The fact is they have a, they have a total lack of will. The fact that the Biden administration could hire 87,000 new IRS agents uh, to audit businesses, but not 87,000 new border control agents, when what's happening with both human trafficking and fentanyl and illegal narcotics flowing over the border, it's just unconscionable. Um, and it really shows that there needs to be uh, – people need to be fired at Homeland Security – What's happening right now at the border is just chaos. We need a new president and new leadership to change it. Uh, Attorney General Jason Mayores, thank you so much for briefing the American people this Sunday morning, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. I Let's like go that Larry movie. Kudlow. Larry, what's going on with the economy? Interest rates up, stocks down. Interest rates up, inflation up, stocks down. And I think that's going to be a theme for a while. That's where I'm looking at it. Inflation is going to be worse than the Fed is telling us. Oil prices have a lot to do with it. Um, There's no telling how high oil prices are going to go. The Fed's going to have to raise their target rate much more than people think. And none of this is good for the stock market, which is kind of overvalued to begin with. Realistically, what happened this week to the market may be a harbinger of a difficult autumn. Well, Larry, uh, I, I looked at Powell doesn't have a clue what's going on. It's like he's looking at the uh, at the rearview mirror because in the last 60 days, oil has gone from what, 70 to, to 90, 95. Yep. I mean, uh, he never mentioned oil in his entire press conference. The only time it came up was when our Fox business reporter, Edward Lawrence, asked him specifically uh, about the rising price of oil that you just mentioned and how that was going to impact inflation. And then Powell sort of blathers through a terrible answer 
and then says, well, oil doesn't impact inflation. It's not going to have any inflation effect. It already has recent months, the last couple months with the rise in oil prices. Uh, the CPI has gone up, stopped going down. It's now going back up. Uh, I don't think oil's coming down because, you know, here's Biden uh, freezing production and drilling in Alaska and New Mexico and the Gulf of Mexico, while OPEC plus our dear friends, the Saudis and the Russians and the Iranians and the Venezuelans, they are cutting production. And he can't go to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve because he's already looted half of the thing. So the hour for oil is probably bullish. There's very little reserve left. Yeah, that's correct. And so that means the uh, inflation rates are going to stay, continue to rise. It's going to get worse, Larry. The the price of gasoline, I think, is going to go to five. Or, if it stays at ninety five dollars a barrel, the price of gasoline is going to to five five and a half six dollars a a gallon. Uh, price of heating oil is up to three and a half already, and the price of food is not going down. It's going to go up. So it's hurting the middle class and it and it's hurting the uh, the poor people. That's right. Low income people get hurt very badly from this. You know, fertilizer goes up, so food prices have to go up. Uh, I mean, I don't know how far it's going to go. You're more of an expert than I am. I'm just saying that the Federal Reserve is not being transparent. Um, They're not finished tightening. And I think the stock market is sniffing that out. Yes. Well, Larry Kudlow, uh, have a great weekend. I understand you might be flying uh, uh, to California for the debates. and uh, Yeah, I'm travel safe. I'm going to be at the debates. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, We're going to do our show out there, and I'm going to do the pre-debate show. Thank you, Larry Kudlow. Travel safe. All right. Thanks, kids. A bold statement, by the way, coming from Saudi, uh, saying that if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, well, they're going to get one, too. So uh, the stakes are pretty high. But some people in New York, uh, you know. That's right. Uh, Saudi Arabia has nuclear. They haven't taken delivery of them. Or they paid for them, and there's some place. I don't know. My security clearance doesn't go that high. Maybe we can give them $6 billion, right? That might help things. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we give $6 billion to Iran. They can buy it. their own nuke. Uh, what a mess. Let's, let's go, go to KT. Yeah, let's go to KT McFarland, <laughs> Deputy National Security Advisor. KT, we love having you on the show. You know, this it is really getting scary out there when you see the stakes and where things are headed. And then we had the Iranian president sitting there, t- I couldn't believe it this week, saying, yeah, we can basically go after Americans. We got them on a hit list, and we're going to kind of keep on going. This is amazing, KT. Yeah, and and the problem that the, that the Biden administration and the Obama administration before it just didn't understand is that the more you give, in in this instance, the more you know concessions you give, and the nicer you are, the more they take advantage of you, and and that is particularly the case with Iran. So Iran now is getting basically a billion dollars for every five American hostages they snagged. And as a result, Iran is going to use that five, now six billion dollars to to rebuild its terrorist activities in the region, to go after Israel and certainly to help its nuclear program. You know, the American government said the Biden administration said, well, we're going to pay this money for hostages and we'll throw in a few extra Iranian hostages in the balance, we'll get American citizens back. And the money we're giving them is really kind of theirs anyway. They and their money anyway. 
Yeah, is there yeah. money anyway? We're going to give it to. They're going to use it to, you know, buy food for children. Yeah, but there's no way to check that. And you know that, KT, right? I mean, of course. It's their money. No, no, no. That's a fact. No, it is. No, no, no. I'm not disputing what I am saying. They're claiming that they will only release it, that they still have control, that the U.S. still has control in the, and the world community. And they're only going to release it for humanitarian and they can check it. Hogwash. That is ridiculous. They want to help the terrorists. That's right. Exactly. And he said that they're going to use it for whatever they want. Screw you, America. Yeah, he laughed. He's oh. like, in fact, he, uh, the head of Iran, KT, came out and said, I'll do whatever the heck I want with it. And then they on kicked September the nuclear. 11th. Yeah, on September 11th. Talk about yeah. salting the wound. Yeah, yeah and, and what's happened is now, you, if, if you, we have a longstanding policy to not negotiate with terrorists for release of hostages because the sad thing is that they'll just go nab some more hostages. And that's exactly what's happened. Iran took an European Union um, diplomat hostage about two weeks ago. So it, it, it was bad policy on all accounts. But I think what's even worse is that the Biden administration, and again, the Obama administration before it, has this love affair with Iran. They're going to allow Iran to have legal nuclear weapons. And as you just pointed out, that means Saudi Arabia and everybody else in the region who have plenty of money, not to build nuclear weapons. That takes a long time. They'll buy them. And probably Saudi Arabia has already on order nuclear weapons that it could get day after tomorrow if Iran gets nuclear weapons. I saw that movie. <laughs> and it's not a good one. It's it doesn't have a happy sum, ending. It's the sum of all fears. Yeah. Yeah, what a crazy situation. So, so what can we do, KT, to your point? And John just made this point that a lot of these policies by this Biden administration, by the president – have been so counterproductive to U.S. national security. We're talking about a wide open border. There were 10 to 11,000 people that crossed yesterday alone in one single day. We're hitting record highs. Then we're now giving $6 billion to the mullahs of Iran. Uh, we pull out of Afghanistan, leave, you know, 85 billion there. I mean, what is going on, KT? I feel like we're living an alternate universe. I'm so concerned. Yeah, well, it's America last foreign policy. That's the Biden wow. foreign policy. Uh, make sure that Iran's happy. Make sure that we've done the climate change. Even though China, by the way, is not signed up for any of the climate change things. And what John has always talked about, which I think is always worth remembering, it's all about energy. It's all about energy. It's all about energy. The United States has enough oil and natural gas to power the world cleanly, cheaply, reliably, abundantly for for our several centuries. And yet President Biden is shutting down the American energy industry while he's still allowing China and other countries. They're going ahead with building coal power plants once a week. So it's like, let's screw the American economy, America last, and let's make sure that these other countries, especially our enemies, are doing really well. I mean, a lot of the money that's going to be appropriated for the Green New Deal policies is for all these solar panels, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff's made in China. Governor Patterson, you had a comment before we take a break? No, I just agreed that we've put our priorities in the background next to what's going on now, and we're going to pay for that. Yeah, we're going to our, – our country is going to suffer for that. You're 100% right. Ed Cox, anything before we go? Yeah, look, I, for high oil prices, guess what's – 
President Biden well, is going to do it to get his re-election? Wait, wait, the Russians, Tap into the reserves. Gonna, uh, the the Russians bro, completely. The, the Russians need the money, so, you know. Yeah, I know. Give them a break. Give them a break. <laughs> yeah, give them a break. <laughs> no, except around your election time, yeah. then you got to lower well, the gasoline Well, take Tim McFarland. We love you. Keep fighting for our country, and we'll catch up again real soon. If you ever miss a segment or want to hear it again, go to WABCRadio.com, go to podcasts, go to minicasts, and play back your favorite segment. Thank you for listening to the Cats Roundtable. Every Sunday morning, we'll bring you the latest in what's happening in our community, our country, and the world. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a nice Sunday.